I'm Chris Alvarez, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar. We're located on the web at warscholar.org and militaryhistorypodcast.com. Thank you. I'm speaking with Dr. Paul Post, author of Arguing About Alliances, The Art of Agreement in Military Pact Negotiations. Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. Um, so first, tell me, how did you get into writing about uh, writing a book on this subject? Um, a major reason I got involved in writing a book on this subject was I had done research related to a broader issue years ago as part of my dissertation. The broader issue was um, this concept called issue linkages. Mm-hmm. And this is something that in today's world is actually very prominent in the news with the whole idea of quid pro quos, mm-hmm. right? And and I was researching this because this is a well-known um, idea in diplomacy, the idea that states will, um, if they're trying to reach an agreement, they will make trade-offs, exchanges of value. They'll say, hey, I would like to form, for example, an alliance with you, and I know you want to form a trade agreement with me, so maybe we can reach a deal where we'll sign an agreement where you get to trade with me and I get the alliance. So I became interested in studying this topic of alliances, or excuse me, of issue linkage, and I found that military alliances were kind of a natural way to be able to start exploring this. and this, and this also was useful for another reason, which is that I had been previously doing research on the area, in the area called the political economy of security. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the political economy of security is kind of like war financing and military spending and so forth. Mm-hmm. So the combination of wanting to explore this idea of issue linkages along with my previous work in studying, um, the political economy security led me to say, hey, maybe a way that I could study issue linkage is by looking at instances where a security issue, states have taken a security issue like alliances, and tried to link it with a economic issue like trade. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I started studying this. Well, in the process of studying instances where states had done this, they were trying to form an alliance and offer, say, trade or aid, what I started to do was researching Instances where this didn't work, instances where an offer like this is made and states end up walking away and still say, no, that's not good enough. And, and that was really important to be able to identify if I was going to actually be able to say anything about whether issue linkages worked. I needed to know when they didn't happen, when they didn't work. But what that led me to do was keep finding, I kept finding more and more and more cases of where negotiations to form an alliance had failed. And so that started to raise additional questions for me about, well, why is it that these negotiations fail? I mean, obviously I was looking at the issue linkage, but there was broader. It led me to say, well, what is it that really leads negotiations over alliances to fail? And what does that tell us about the times when it succeeds? Mm-hmm. So what uh, what examples do you use in the book and how do you break it down? Do you go um, by, by historical examples or do you go more, more by issues and use the examples? Uh, so, so I start the, the the book opens with my favorite example, um, and the, that example, one of the most famous examples, and that is the 1939 negotiations with the French, British, and Soviet Union, 
where they tried to form an alliance to be able to stop, uh, to deter Hitler. And they met in the summer, the spring, and then summer of 1939, they failed to reach an agreement. And so this is a famous instance of, of failure. And so I, I like to weave in these kind of examples throughout. But the main thing I do is I use um, quantitative analysis. What I did was because I had collected all this data, I had identified all these cases, 130-some cases of failed negotiations. And then I coupled that with a few hundred um, cases that we knew of states who had, when they had formed alliances, and I acquired these data from um, what's called the Alliance Treaty Obligations and Provisions data set. And this was a data set that was put together by Ashley Weed at Rice University uh, several years ago. So that meant that I had data on failed negotiations. I had data on successful negotiations because there was an agreement signed. And so that allowed me to be able to have some leverage to kind of look for patterns in these data to be able to see, well, what explains why they succeed? What explains why they, the ones that reach agreement, are there things that are correlated with them reaching agreement? And if there are things that failed, were there things that were correlated with them failing? And then what I was able is once I looked at those patterns, then I explored two specific cases um, using primary source documents. I explored two specific cases to see if the reasons that looked like they were correlated with success were actually what was going on. Because you, know, you can see correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, right? And a lot of times to know if that's truly what's going on, you have to dive in very carefully and very deeply into specific, maybe representative cases. And so the two cases I looked at were the 1901 negotiations between the British and the Germans. And this is... It goes down, many historians have referred to this as the great missed opportunity that had these two states formed an alliance, how might history have gone differently? And then the that was the failure that I looked at. And then the representative success I looked at was the North Atlantic Treaty Organization or the North Atlantic Treaty Negotiations in 1948-49. And so those were the two key cases I looked at. But again, throughout the book, I weave in different other examples such as that 1939 uh, negotiation between the British, French, and Soviets. What date range would you say the examples that you looked at cover? So the date range, I, I, it's largely historical. Um, and so I go from 1816, which is really the beginning of when a lot of our data become available to be able to post our era. That's when variables, uh, economic variables, military variables, so forth, become available that we can analyze. And that's also when Ashley Leeds and her scholar, uh, her colleagues had started collecting data on alliances. So it starts 1816, and I go to through World War II, so 1945. And I think that there's a lot of valuable reasons to look at that historical time period. And I write a little bit about this in the book that, you know, if anything, this is a time of, that was a time of multipolarity, as we like to talk about, multiple great powers. It wasn't the Cold War bipolarity, and it wasn't the post-Cold War unipolarity. It was multiple powers. And that that means the system behaves a little bit differently than it would under the Cold War system or in the post-Cold War. And then what I say is that, well, actually, this maybe in many ways is more relevant for today than looking at the Cold War or even looking at the early post-Cold War because we are moving back into a system of multipolarity. So that's why I think it's valuable to look at that time period. The other reason is really even more practical 
which is that we have a fairly complete uh, diplomatic record then. You know, we have, you know, this has been a time period where a lot of diplomatic historians have gone through and, and looked at, you know, studied a variety of documents and so forth. The documents are available as opposed to, say, the 1980s or 1990s. And so we have a good sense of when states were negotiating alliances and when they were. That doesn't mean we have a perfect sense by any means. But relative to post-1945, I feel like the data are more complete pre during that 19th century, early 20th century time period than, say, post-1945. So did you see any issue where um, the greater the danger of um, attack by an enemy, the more likely a country might um, relax its its requirements when negotiating a treaty, or it, it, does that question make sense? It does. And, you know, the, probably the best way to approach it is to talk a little bit about what I think are the related with successful negotiations and could lead to failed negotiations. And the two key variables that I point to in the book are number one, I point to um, this concept I call war plan compatibility or ideal war plan compatibility. Mm-hmm. What I argue is that when states sit down to negotiate an alliance treaty, even if it, the treaty itself doesn't reflect this, they are largely talking about war plans. What would we do if deterrence fails? What would we do if, if we decide to attack this other state or this state attacks us? And so what that means is they sit down, and each state, when they sit down to do these negotiations, has in has an ideal war plan. How we would, you know, who who do we think is a threat? What do we think is the best approach to attacking them? And it could even go all the way down to very specific tactical details and logistical details. But at minimum, they're going to come in and know who do we consider to be our major threats and what do we think is the most appropriate, say, um, grand strategic approach to them, kind of at the doctrine level. Do we think it's important to take the fight to them, to be offensive, or do we think it's better to take a defensive position um, and maybe hold a certain territory and wait for them to come to us? And so those are what the states come into a negotiation thinking. That goes directly to your question, because one of those key things is that very high-level war plan component, which is who are our threats? And those two states, if you think of a negotiation with two states, they basically each come in with like a portfolio of threats. We think this state is our biggest threat, this state is a lesser threat, this state is not a threat at all. And the two states could come in, and one of the first things they'll talk about is, well, who do we think is a threat? And do we agree on that? And then they'll say, well, do we want to expand this out to deal with any secondary threats? And there's examples of this. Um, for instance, when the French and the Russians were negotiating an alliance pact in the late 19th century, and of course this became an alliance pact, they actually successfully negotiated this, but a key point of the Hungary. They both agreed that Germany was a major threat, but France didn't wasn't looking to sign an alliance where Austria-Hungary would also be part of this, would be a target of it. And Russia was saying, well, no, we want an alliance in case we get into a conflict with Austria-Hungary. So that was a key thing that they had to kind of work out was how to deal with that kind of secondary threat, that second-level threat. So oftentimes states come in with, if you will, it's very easy to say, yes, we are both in agreement that Russia is a threat, or we're both in agreement that Germany is a threat. But then it becomes, well, 
but do we agree on, again, Austria-Hungary being a threat, or Japan being a threat, or France being a threat? And do we want to, and then to what extent is, are we able to kind of agree on limiting the number of threats we deal with, or actually expanding that list? Were you able to research um, how much transparency there was in negotiations, and that how much were they willing to share information on their military capability, what they knew about the threats, that sort of thing? So what I was able to find was, you know, it's it actually, your question in many ways goes to the heart of kind of why, the, you know, how the bargaining can sometimes break down. Hmm. Because the states will come in with their ideal war plans, right? And the ideal is just from their perspective, gee, it'd be great if we could target day-to-day and we could take an offensive approach, and that's what we're going to come in for. And then, but they might have a war plan that is at the least acceptable one. You know, there might be something off of their ideal war plan that they would be willing to accept, but they're not going to come out and share that right away. And they may not even share it at all if they can get their ideal war plan. But they would say, well, you know, we're actually willing to... You know, we don't have to necessarily take an offensive approach towards Russia. We'd be willing to take a defensive approach. And so states will come in with kind of their ideal plans, and they'll present those. They'll say, hey, this is what we really want. But they're not necessarily going to share, at least right away, what their least acceptable plan is. And that's where a second variable really becomes important. A second variable is, what are your outside options? Do you have, is this something where you feel like you have to reach this agreement, you have to get the deal done, or do you feel like, you know what, let me just walk away. If you're not going to give us our ideal plan, we know someone else who will give us our ideal plan. And that's the other thing that when it comes from an information standpoint, states will be kind of wary to share, right, is to what extent do they have an outside option and to what extent do they view that outside option as attractive? Do they say, well, we have an outside option, and you know we have an outside option, but you don't know how strongly we feel about it. For example, England, famous for blended isolation. We can just kind of, we don't really have to have an alliance. And everybody knew when negotiating with the British that that was always an outside option for them. They could just say, you know what, splendid isolation, that's what we're going to do. But what they couldn't tell was in certain instances were the British more, did they find that more attractive or less attractive, right? And so that would always be the key is you couldn't figure out quite how much the British thought splendid isolation was the best way to go. And so that would be sometimes that would be what would lead to these failures in the negotiations would be, for example, maybe the British, because they're not willing to share quite how attractive they find their outside option, the other side's not willing to give in, right? The other side is kind of saying, you know, well, we, we don't think you're going to want to be isolated this time. We think you need to form a line. So we're going to continue to push a hard line to make sure we get our ideal plan. Okay. So, and this is where one of the key failure case that I look at is really a classic example of this. And that is the case of the 1901 negotiations between the British and the Germans. Here's a case where they actually both agreed Russia was the threat. There was no question about that. Mm-hmm. Where they disagreed was where. Germany was concerned about England, or excuse me, Germany was concerned about Russia's actions in Europe. Britain was more concerned about 
Russia's actions in East Asia. Mm-hmm. And so they had, so it wasn't even about Russia, it was about where. And then to what extent do you make the alliance either comprehensive, we will address both Russia wherever they attack anywhere, or do you make it geographically limited to Europe or to East Asia? Now you can imagine Russia doesn't want to make a comprehensive, or excuse me, Germany doesn't want to make a comprehensive agreement regarding Russia because they don't want to be on the hook for having to defend British interests in East Asia. And Britain, well, they're like, well, look, Germany, you're the one that has a shared border with Russia. I mean, we, we, we don't need to put ourselves in a position where we feel compelled to have to come to someone's defense against Russia. So they weren't going to be able to agree on having a comprehensive agreement. So the negotiations really boiled down to, is it Europe or is it East Asia? And this became a matter of then the sides figuring out, well, how attractive are their outside options? In the case of Germany, it was trying to figure out how much do the British feel like splendid isolation is actually a way to go here. And they didn't think it would be much because they thought that that didn't really apply with East Asia. On the other hand, they didn't really know the extent to which the British were already negotiating with the Japanese. And so the British and the Japanese, following the failure of these negotiations, actually did sign an agreement. So that was the outside option, and Germany wasn't fully aware of the extent to which Britain was pursuing that outside option. Similarly, Britain felt that Germany had, they already had an alliance. They had the triple alliance with Austria, Hungary, and Italy, but Britain felt that Germany didn't view that as a very viable alliance. And so they said, look, we think Germany's going to really need to be aligned with us, ultimately. And so it's this matter of both having disagreement over the ideal plan and then kind of not being not being able to fully figure out the attractiveness of the outside options that ultimately undermine that negotiation. Hmm. It's interesting that uh, considering, you know, World War I started in 1914, when you, when you mentioned Britain and Germany negotiating in 1901, you might think, if you don't know the history, you might think, oh, they were negotiating so that they don't go to war against each other. Yeah. Because they were, instead, they were negotiating to be partners, and then mm-hmm. 13 years later, they're at war. Yes, yes. It's really a fascinating, and I think that's why a lot of historians have referred to it as the great missed opportunity, because it really would have changed the dynamics of Europe during that time. You would have seen a situation where, well, do, does a Russo-Japanese war even happen? That's one possibility, right? Because now all of a sudden, Britain is not aligned with Japan. They would have been aligned with Germany. And then Japan may have pursued a very different strategy with respect to Russia, right? Um, you would not, maybe you would not have had an alliance or an entente uh, between England and France. Could have been a very different situation there. Maybe France has to totally change their, strate- their strategies. So you could see where a lot of the entire situation would have played out very differently if Britain in Germany are in alliance. And it may have even played out differently in that Germany and Russia may still, you could still think of the minimal rewrite here, where Germany and Russia may be still get into a dispute regarding the Balkans in 1914 or 1913 or 1915. But because Germany is explicitly aligned with England, England might have had a greater ability to kind of restrain Germany. And maybe say, look, don't, you know, we understand what you, we understand you have interest here, but let's keep this limited. 
Instead, without that connection, if anything, you know, Germany, one of the great things that we know, we don't know everything about the July crisis, but one thing we do know is that Germany trying to figure out what's England going to do. And if we go, and so that dynamic would have been very different had they been allies. What about the issue, you know, you take the, the old statement, uh, democracies don't go to war. So the question I have is, how much, during negotiations, do you get any idea of how much um, one country is worried about a change in government, you know, in the other? Are they going to stay steady through the alliance mm. and, you know, that sort of thing? Absolutely. This actually came up during the Franco-Russian uh, negotiations um, in the late 18, or early 1890s, where, and it really was a constant throughout the existence of the Franco-Russian alliance, um, throughout the 1890s and 1910s and then up to World War One, was Russia was always thinking, well, what's, you know, if a new government comes in, are they going to change their policy? And actually this did lead to a point of tension at one uh, juncture, I think in 1911, where because of a new French government, they wanted to change the conscription laws. I think they wanted to go from a three-year law to a two-year law, so shorten the amount of time that conscripts would be in the military. And this led to big concerns upon the part of Russia, where they said, well, look, does that mean you're going to be basically weakening your ability to carry out a military operation because you're not going to have as many uh, well-trained soldiers available for as long of a time? And eventually the French government went back on that. But this is an example of where you can have kind of this somewhat, you know, somewhat erratic policies Due to a um, you know concerns about due to constant elections by a democracy, the other area where you see this play out is again going back to the Anglo-German negotiations in 1900-1901, where the common narrative that's been put forward, and I saw this in some of the you know classic works on this negotiation that's been done by historians, is they talk about how there was a view that the British basically said, we can't do this because public opinion would never support it. That was the argument that was put forth. As I said, public opinion will never support it. And the reality is, yes, that was the excuse given, was public support's not going to get it. But if you actually dive into the negotiations, you can see where they're like, well, you know, if we need to bring the public on board, we can Right. You know, if we really feel passionately about this, we can sell it. This is not something that we can't sell. So the other thing you see about what democracy is that a lot of times it can just become a convenient excuse for not reaching an agreement. You can say, oh, well, the public won't support this. Um, this was also something you saw with the North Atlantic Treaty negotiation. Big concern of the French very much saying that, you know, the public will not support a treaty that does not include Algeria. Algeria has to be part of this, and and the public won't support it. Now, could the French government have possibly have sold a treaty that was more limited and not including parts of northern Africa? Possibly. But the other sides didn't want to risk it in that case. So that's the other way in which you see democracy kind of playing a role is that the public provides this useful foil and um, scapegoat, if you will, for the negotiator. So this next question is perhaps a bit philosophical and maybe self-evident, but how much of an effect on negotiations is it knowing that the treaty is really only 
going to exist until the next war starts? You know, does it affect any of the terms? Because, you know, once war starts and then it ends, you reset. You know, treaties generally don't survive. New ones are created, um, you know, such as NATO. NATO yeah, exactly. You know. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, this is this this really is um, it, it really goes to the heart of one of those key variables that explains why these negotiations, what's happening during negotiations, which is the war plan. And they'll come in with an ideal war plan. They'll reach an agreement with an ideal war plan. And then the war breaks out. And these things could very much change. And um, and you see that. I mean, the, the, a great example of these changing alliances is look at the Soviet Union with Germany, right? That part of the reason why those 1939 negotiations failed was because the Russians knew they had a, a viable outside option. If they couldn't get the kind of agreement that they wanted, they could just turn to Nazi Germany and sign a non-aggression pact as well as, a, and it was also an offensive alliance to be able to take over parts of Poland and the Baltic states. So they knew they had a, a good outside option. They signed that agreement. They had this alliance with Nazi Germany. And, of course, as we famously know, that didn't play out, that eventually Nazi Germany turns on Russia, at which point they go back to the British and, you know, and start negotiating. Then the United States comes on board, and now... You have a very, you have the United Nations, and you have a very comprehensive arrangement uh, between the Allied powers. So that's a that is a very that's a key example of what you're talking about. Kind of this fluid situation of where you had a pact going in, war breaks out, the dynamics totally change, and so the alliance ends up changing. Um, and yeah, I mean, this is something that is taken into consideration when they're negotiating. Um, we're fully aware that we have our ideal war plan. It ideally entails you fulfilling this role. But most of the time, and I think this is a key thing to remember with alliances, is most of the time when you're negotiating these, you're hoping that war doesn't break out. You're hoping that it serves to effectively deter. And so these discussions about war plans oftentimes are about, okay, we ideally we don't want to have to fight. But if we do, how are we going to proceed with this? Are you thinking about this the same way that we're thinking about this? Are you going to equip yourself in the same way that we're going to equip ourselves? Because if you're not, then we're afraid that deterrence is not going to work. So I think that's ultimately something important to keep in mind with these negotiations is they're negotiating with war plans that they hope never actually have to be used. You, you used an interesting term, um, when you mentioned, you know, after Germany attacked Russia in World War II and then Russia started negotiating with Britain, you, you, you said arrangement. And it's interesting because during war, you know, if you're, if you're developing a military pact while conflict is raging, you know, obviously you yeah. have different, different options that you're looking at and you're more, you know, you're more stressed by the situation that the Soviet Union won seems to be more seem to be more of an arrangement of how we're going to divide up Europe after the war and yes maybe I don't know the details of it but it seems to be less of a, a detailed war plan than sort of a general hey we're going to focus on this you focused on that and at the end we'll divide territory up in such and such way I want to know what's the best way to kind of answer your question mm -hmm. here of like is it just kind of restate your question so 
So it seems that 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 military pact would be much different from others that are negotiated during peacetime. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's right, and that that yeah, that's that's exactly right. So kind of the the difference between uh, yeah a negotiation during well, there's really kind of three ways to think about it. Mm-hmm. There's three phases here. The first phase would be a peacetime negotiated pact, and there's lots of examples of this. Of course, the North Atlantic Treaty is an example of this. The Franco-Russian alliance is uh, an example of this. Then there can also be negotiations and pacts signed, or at least attempted to be signed, on the verge of war. The expectation that war is going to be breaking out, we need to be able to negotiate this. And that would, of course, be what was going on with the um, with the Franco uh, Anglo, the, the British, French, and Soviet negotiations in 1939. They kind of anticipated war could potentially be breaking out. By this point, the Munich Pact had fallen apart, so they feel like they're on the verge of war. And then the third type is negotiations during wartime, and these do take on a very different flavor. Um, and a great example of that is the kind of the negotiations leading to the Atlantic Charter between the United States and the British. Where at this point, it's, it's very clear who the threats are. So it's kind of like that, that's taken off the table, right? That, that's, that's not really in contrast to a peacetime negotiation where it's like, well, we have, you know, this threat and this thing could happen there and this could happen in this case. When it comes to wartime, everybody knows who's the threat and where they're a threat because there's a war breaking out. There's a war happening right now. So it actually helps focus things in that case. It helps to focus the mind in that case. Um, it also, there isn't as much debating when it comes to the war plan, because it's kind of like, look, the war is unfolding. We have an idea of what needs to be done, how this needs to be done. Um, so to put a little more flesh on this, when the British and the Americans were negotiating the Atlantic Charter, there's the well-known clause of German first, Germany first, right? You know, that it was, we recognize that Japan is also an issue, but given the current dynamics, we know for certain that Germany is the bigger threat, we know what they're doing. We know what's unfolding. And so it was very easy for the British and the Americans to quickly agree that, yes, Germany is the main threat. Our forces have to be concentrated in Europe. Now, they didn't mean that they had full agreement on exactly how that should be done. Should they pursue a northern strategy or a southern strategy? I mean, there were a lot of logistics and tactical aspects that had to be worked out. But, yes, having a negotiation during wartime very much does change those dynamics in terms of the aspects of the war plan that during peacetime could become stumbling blocks. During wartime, it's much more clear, and so those don't become as much of an issue. What becomes more of an issue, and this is something I kind of read into a little bit to your question, is post-war. Okay, what are we going to do? We know who the threat is. We know how we're going to approach it. But when we win, what are we going to do? Right? Who's going to get what? Who's going to control what territory? And that's another tough set of negotiations. Now, those weren't negotiations I necessarily explored in detail in this book, but the prime example of those type of negotiations are, of course, the wartime planning, Yalta, Potsdam, even Bretton Woods negotiations that took place during World War II, where those were just a constant series of negotiations where it wasn't about the threat. And it wasn't about the tactics. It was about what are we going to do afterwards. And that's where you started to see a lot of disagreement and hard negotiating going on. 
So I think that that's the biggest difference between a wartime negotiation versus a peacetime or even uh, imminent war negotiation. Do you have any other, are there any other issues you discuss in the book that uh, maybe we haven't touched on yet that you'd like to mention? Well, I think one of the things that's, you know, for me, I, I think what's useful is to kind of talk about what I learned from writing the book. You know, like things I didn't know when I came into writing this, that when coming out, I'm like, wow, this is, this is very different. And I think there's a couple of things. Uh, first of all, especially for international relations scholars, when we think of alliances, we tend to think a lot about the signaling value of alliances. And what we mean by that is that you sign this piece of paper, uh, and what it does is it sends a signal to the threat that, hey, look, we are taking measures to protect each other, so don't try to be aggressive. And that becomes very much the focus of how we think about alliances. But the reality is that can very much skew what the negotiations are actually about. And that the negotiations almost have nothing to do with this, this signaling property or so forth. It has to do with these very nitty-gritty type of strategic elements of, you know, who's threat, where are we going to do this? Um, and, and some of this is done at the high diplomatic level. Some of this is then handed off to military officials later on. So that was something that I thought was really enlightening for me in this book, was seeing how much that, as much as we think about alliances and their signaling value, that's not really something that's discussed a lot in the actual negotiation. The other thing that really jumped out at me was that I felt that the other way that kind of IR scholars think about it is they tend to think of states as forming alliances or have not formed alliances. You know, this group of states formed alliances and this group of states didn't. But to me, what was really enlightening was thinking about that there are just this big group of states who try and don't get the job done. And that that really, to me, points to a bigger issue, which is there's a lot of instances like that in history of the near misses, the events that almost happened, and that we tend to put a big focus on the wars that happen, the crises that unfold, the agreements that are signed, and we don't pay enough attention to the failed events. We don't pay enough attention to the crises that didn't escalate to war. We don't pay enough attention to the agreements that were negotiated but not signed. We don't pay enough attention to the threats that were considered, and then they decided not to do it. And what really came out to me was that exploring, you know, I only explore it in the context of alliance negotiations, but I really think this is a bigger but not, this is a bigger opportunity for both historians and scholars of international relations to explore, which are the, you know, the dogs that didn't bark, if you will. And so that's another key thing that jumped out. Um, the last key thing was just more insight, very specifically about the North Atlantic Treaty. There was just a lot that I think is kind of taken for granted about that treaty, and especially in today's world where you hear a lot about the liberal international order and you know NATO's place in the um, you know protection of democracy and security of Europe and so forth. It, it, the common narrative, and I even see this in some of the history books that I've read about NATO, which is that the negotiations maybe take up five pages. It's like you know, okay, yeah, we had these negotiations and they talked about it. And it happened from mid-48 to mid-49, and then a lot of the action starts later. But really diving into these negotiations, I could see how it was not a given that this was going to work. 
-hmm. It was not a given at all. And that there were real disagreements about this. The United States didn't come in and say, you know, we know that Europe's been devastated. We know Europe is threatened by communism. Therefore, we're going to bestow upon the Europeans the, you know, blanket of freedom that we can through NATO. And that's not what happened at all. The United States was even thinking about kind of issuing a similar type of Truman Doctrine, kind of a declaration saying, well, you know, we'll protect Europe and just as they did with Turkey and Greece, but not actually sign a, an agreement. And it was really Canada that kind of played a key role in kind of being this middle broker between the Europeans and the Americans to kind of say, hey, look, I, I really think there's an opportunity here for to create an agreement, create a pact that could be in U.S. interests, can also help the Europeans. And it was really interesting to see that. And then eventually it became critical that Canada was part of this because that was necessary to sell this to the senators. It's not a European pact. It's a North Atlantic pact. And it was key that Canada is part of that to be able to show that this wasn't just a European alliance. So those kind of interesting nuances to it really just highlight to me how this was, it was just not a given that this was going to happen. And I think that is something that a lot of historians can appreciate, the role of contingency in history and so forth. And for me, it was very clear with something as something that we just take for granted nowadays, like the North Atlantic Treaty, again, it was not a given, even during those negotiations, that it was going to work. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think nowadays people aren't are no longer taking it for granted. <laughs> I think so, that's right. Um, so you mentioned some of the resources you used for your research. Were there any yep. other archives or, or any other sources of information you haven't mentioned yet that you found really useful? So you know, the, the, the process by which I identify these failed negotiations is, and I mean this in the most flattering way possible, but I basically allowed eminent diplomatic historians to be my research assistants. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason why I say that is the conundrum that I faced was – I wanted to know when negotiations happened but didn't reach agreement. And I said, well, I could, I, you know, I, I, we're going to be looking for not a needle in a haystack. We're going to be looking for a needle in a hay barn, right? Because these are going to be events that, first of all, they there might be very little discussion of them. Secondly, because they were failed, there might even be just very few documents about them. But it's like, well, you know, this was a failure and there's a few things and might be briefly mentioned, but it's like, where do we even start? So the way I started was just reading Eminent historians, their diplomatic histories, you know, we're talking about people like Schrader or A.J.P. Taylor even, you know, we're just going through all of these various histories, uh, Zara Steiner, and just, it turns out they identify some of these. They'll mention this. Now, you might only mention it in passing. You might say, well, well, these two states got together, but eventually one of them went and talked to someone else. And it's like, whoa, okay, wait a minute here. What just happened? And, and you know, and so... That was a way for me to kind of quickly start to accumulate a set of these failed negotiations, was just using the diplomatic histories as a source of data, as a as a data source. Mm -hmm. And that was, and again, it was it was a way to kind of take what could ultimately be like I don't even know where to start, and allow me to start focusing. And then what I was able to do was once conducting that, then start turning to some of the key identifying a couple of key cases, and then turning to the key document collections on those cases. Now, I was fortunate in that two of the cases I looked at are two cases where there actually are a lot of documents available for them. The North Atlantic Treaty 
negotiations. The foreign relations of the United States just has extensive documentation. Um, the Canadian government has extensive documentation, as do the British, as do the French, to where you don't even need to go to archives per se because they've collected these mad, they've created these massive document collections uh, related to those negotiations. Same thing with the Anglo-German negotiations. You have both the German government, and you know, this is what famously we know from World War One that because there was so much blame going on, all these governments issued these huge document collections after the war. Now, there's a lot of bias in those document collections, but the bias is towards whose fault it was. And so what was useful was a lot of them, the Germans and the British, both in German language and, of course, in English, um, compiled these document collections and would include things such as, oh, yeah, we had these negotiations, and here's the documents regarding these negotiations. And you could actually, in that case, you can feel pretty confident about what the negotiate, what the documents show, because those weren't, that wasn't really the purpose of putting together the document collection. It, you know, there wasn't a fear of like a bias of, oh, we need to put this in here to show it wasn't our fault. It's like, no, we just want to highlight that, yeah, we had negotiated with the British, here's what we have. And you can also see in those documents where they're sharing things about, you know, well, we, yeah, we may have actually undermined this negotiation, which would not be something you would want to show if you were trying to make a case that you were actually peace-loving and so forth. So so those were kind of the sources that I relied on. It's kind of starting with the diplomatic histories, using those as a way to start to identify a set of reasonable negoti of negotiations, and then from there identifying a few key cases that then I could turn to various document collections to be able to start um, exploring. Yeah, another perhaps interesting angle of research, and I'm sure some people have done it, is um, how diplomatic relations between, say, a, one group of countries are negotiating a pact. If one of those countries, their diplomatic relations with the country that the pact was aimed against, you know, maybe, yes. you know, threats and such like, hey, you better watch out because we're about to, you know, I wonder how that all played in as well. Oh, yes. I mean, this is it, it, the, the, you can tell where there was a lot of, um, especially in the case of the British, where you can see during this time where the British are negotiating, as I said, during 1900, 1901, they're negotiating with the Germans. They're also starting to negotiate with the Japanese. And, yeah, you can see where they want to make it clear that there's a lot of activity going on directed towards, and, and that was actually part of what complicated the negotiations, right, between the Germans and the British, is that the Germans are like, to what extent are the British also negotiating with the Japanese to simply try to show to the Russians that we're serious about doing things, and to what extent is that something that's geared towards an alternative to us? And, you know, the Germans kind of, guess wrong with that. So, yeah, you can see also that dynamic unfolding. Mm -hmm. um, I know there you were probably left with many questions um, at the end of your research, but is there any particular question that you didn't find an answer to that you would have loved um, to find an answer for? Good question. Like, yeah, was there something that I set out to try to understand that, you know, coming away, I was just like, yeah, I, I still don't, I still don't feel like I have a good grasp of it. And, you know, on the one hand, yeah, I would say one of the things that I'm still exploring is that, you know, I guess I would answer the question kind of in this way, is 
because I put a big focus on war plans and the discussion about war plans, one of the things I wanted to know more about were the policies that the governments would put in place to show that they're going to diligently follow through on the war plans. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's one thing to sit there and we sign a piece of paper, and that piece of paper sometimes could be very broad. Mm-hmm. As in the case of the North Atlantic Treaty, it doesn't really say anything specific. Instead, what they do is they have an article to say, we're going to create this council that will handle all the details. That's what it said. Um, and then sometimes there's negotiation, there's treaties that are very detailed in terms of the number of troops, where they're going to be placed, the date and the time where they're going to be placed, um, ex- excruciating detail. But in both cases, it would be interesting to know, it would have been interesting to know more about kind of the follow-up of like, okay, well, you've agreed to this, what do you do to ensure that the sides are actually going to put themselves in a spot to fulfill that war plan. Mm. Um, and so are you going to put in kind of checkpoints, if you will? You know, And this is really where alliance negotiations differ from trade negotiations. Because with trade, once you've reached an agreement on trade, it's fairly easy, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's relatively easy to know if a country is complying or not. Are my goods getting into, you know, on a daily basis? Are my goods getting to their port? Are they having a tariff put on them, um, et cetera? You can actually observe that on a day-to-day basis. Normalcy offers many opportunities to check compliance. But when it comes to alliance packs, normalcy doesn't offer a lot of opportunities to check compliance. The only time you truly know when an alliance pact is going to be complied is on that occasion where it's being invoked because of war, because of aggression. So normal day-to-day relations, you're like, I I guess they're going to follow through. I don't know if they're going to follow through. And so that would be the thing that, that for me, I want to know more about. And I've started to do some research on that. of like thinking about, well, why weren't there more, say, like troop placements, um, basing, like we see in in the post-1945 world with U.S. troops based in Europe. Why wasn't that done more aggressively by, say, the British in the pre-1945 world, in 19, prior to 1914? Because that would have been a very credible way for them to show that, yes, we were going to defend Belgium, for example, or we're going to help out France, for example. And so I didn't see enough of kind of what are the things that the states put in place to ensure that the sides are going to fulfill this. Instead, you saw more of kind of like, okay, we're going to sign this, and so, yeah, that's kind of the next thing that I would want to know more about. Hmm. So is this book more geared towards filling historical gaps, or do you see it as a, a way of um, informing people doing fut- current and future negotiation- negotiations? So I think the book serves several purposes. Um, first and foremost, because I am a scholar of international relations, um, it, it it is a book geared towards filling a gap, I think, in the international relations literature, which is, as I was saying before, this notion of the idea that previously scholars used to say, well, there are states who form, who have formed alliances and there are states who didn't, and I've overlooked the fact that there are a lot of instances of attempts that failed. And if you can really understand that, it's going to shed new light into why alliances are formed in the first place. So that's the first contribution is on that kind of IR scholar level of enhancing our knowledge of why military alliances are formed. I think that's kind of the first contribution to this. And that's a 
very old literature. In some ways, you could say it was kind of the beginning literatures. Some of the, one of the earliest literatures of international relations was understanding the creation of military pacts. So that's one area that I hope that makes a contribution. The other area I wanted to make a contribution is on the historical side. Not so much that I brought forward, as I mentioned, I'm relying on well-known document collections. So it's not that I found a new cache of documents that we didn't previously know. Instead, I think that the approach that I'm taking the book sheds new insights and maybe underappreciated aspects to well-known cases, such as the North Atlantic Treaty Negotiation. You know, understanding more of like how close it was to France walking away from the treaty if they didn't get Algeria in. I think that's something that's very much underappreciated. I think a lot of the common narratives are about how the U.S. was worried about being entrapped, and so therefore they needed to have Article 5 written in this kind of very vague way. And a lot of the historical accounts I see emphasize that. And my argument is, yes, that was there, but they knew that was there. Everybody knew that was there. There was never a question that they were going to have to write Article 5 in a relatively vague way. Everybody knew that. So there was never really a danger of the negotiations failing over that. Everybody knew that had to be done. Instead, the danger of it being failed was over the war plan. was over, is France going to walk away because they said, no, we think this has to protect Algeria. We think Italy needs to be part of this, because that was something that Britain and U.S. were not on board with. And I think that that's something that's very much underappreciated by some historians. I think, you know, obviously, so historians who specifically look at NATO would probably say, oh, yeah, of course, we know that. But I think a lot of other folks don't recognize that. And then in turn, that can lead to the third audience, which the third audience is more on the policy side, is giving fresh insight into kind of the precarious nature of these institutions, right? That they're, you know, they're not, as I was saying before, you know, NATO, the liberal order, these were not things that were just suddenly an American project and the U.S. came in and just crafted the whole thing and gave it to everybody. It was something that actually... Like I said, middle, what I call middle power states. And I don't use this phrase in this book. I use it in other work. But that these middle powers actually play more of a critical role, such as I was using an example earlier of Canada. You know, Canada coming in and actually being the one that kind of helps smooth out that situation and actually helps convince the United States that this is a worthwhile thing to do. You see that translate later on in a case I don't explore in this book, but in another book, where I talk about the role of Denmark following the Cold War. Now, Denmark played a key role in helping to convince the United States and the other NATO allies to bring the Baltic states into the North Atlantic Treaty. And so it's kind of highlighting this role of these lesser-known states or these middle powers that typically aren't appreciated by IR scholars or historians, but that they're the ones who really kind of play this role of helping to convince the major powers what to do. And so that's the third audience, is kind of shedding new insight that could help people think about current events, think about the nature of the international system as it stands today. Mm -hmm. Did you have any difficulties getting the book uh, published? Um, no, I was fortunate, and I have a copy here, I can hold it up. So I was very fortunate in that Cornell University Press um, agreed to publish the book. I went through a review process with them. But they were the first press that I targeted with the book. And the reason why is because Cornell University Press has a long history of publishing books on alliances. Hmm. Um, they published Stephen Walt's book, Origins of Alliances, back in 1987, which is one of the um, kind of a canonical book that people read uh, 
IR, regarding IR theory, let alone alliances. They also published Glenn Snyder's book in 1996 called Alliance Politics. Um, they published uh, Dan Ryder's uh, book on um, the crucible of beliefs, which is about alliances and, and about thinking about um, reputation for it. So it has a long, Cornell has a long history of publishing key books on alliances. So much so that when I was talking to another publisher about this book project, um, the publisher asked, well, who are you talking, the publisher heard about it, and he goes, well, I imagine you're talking to Cornell about that, right? I'm like, yes, I am. So it's just, it's kind of well known that Cornell has been a, a, a press that publishes some of the leading books and alliances, so I'm very honored to have the book published by them, and in fact, in the introduction, I even say how I view this book as possibly being able to sit on the shelf between Stephen Walt's book and Glenn Snyder's book. That it's a book that, you know, Stephen Walt's book is about the origins of alliances, but he's more about these, like, broad factors that kind of compel states to think about aligning. And then Glenn Snyder's book is largely about how alliances operate. My book is about kind of linking those two. Saying, okay, you got these broad factors that maybe make you want to form an alliance, but how does that get done? How do you actually get that done? And so that's why... I view it as a book that I hope sits on the shelf between Snyder and Wall. Okay. So what's your next writing project? <laughs> so the next writing project, I'm actually working on um, two projects right now. One of them is a co-author project with um, Rosella Capella-Zelensky, who also has published work with uh, Cornell University Press. And this project is called uh, Grown by War. And it's a nice uh, building off of this one. And what it's about is it's putting forward the argument that all the institutions, especially the economic institutions, that we associate with the, quote, liberal international order, things like the General Agreement on Tariff and Trades or, you know, eventually the World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, the European Coal and Steel Community, which eventually becomes the European Union, all these institutions, the templates for them were developed during World War One, hmm. And it was developed due to the needs of the Allies to coordinate their supply during World War One, And specifically, the, if you will, patient zero was the creation of this thing called the Wheat Executive in late 1916. Hmm. Where the wheat, because there was a problem being able to feed soldiers on the battlefield, make sure there was enough wheat getting to civilians. There was a lot of, like, inefficiencies in the shipping, trying to ship wheat from the United States to Europe, trying to get to Australia. There was all this. And at first, for the first couple of years of the war, the Allied powers, especially the British, uh, the French, eventually the Italians, <clears throat> and even the Russians, they're very inefficient. They're, they're basically bidding against each other to be able to acquire um, wheat. And Eventually, this is creating so many issues that there's a decision made to create this institution. And one of the things that really jumped out to us was that one of the key figures in the creation of this weed executive, which even the officials at the time said was an experiment. We're going to experiment in trying this like form of supranational organization where we're going to create this entity and we're going to make it an allied entity. So the people who are on this board are not going to represent their individual countries. They're going to represent the allies and they're going to make the best decisions for the allies. Well, a key figure in creating that was Jean Monnet, who's the same Jean Monnet that then develops the European coal and steel community following World War II. Mm -hmm. And he even talks about in his memoir about how this really inspired his thinking about the creation of these institutions. 
So, and the reason why, so that's why it's called grown by wars, because it's about the wheat executive mm-hmm. and about developing these institutions. So that's a book project that, again, Roselle and I are really excited about, and uh, we have a book uh, workshop scheduled in the spring. And it's also going to be one that's going to have a lot of historical content to it, um, both on the just kind of classic diplomatic historical side, but also um, kind of more on the economic history side, because there's going to be a lot of data collection of kind of looking at the movement of wheat prices during that time and about how the wheat executive kind of manipulated that. Mm-hmm. Um The second book project is one that's even broader, and it's something that really jumped out to me by working on this book. So if you noticed, my two key examples in this book were the Anglo-German negotiations in 1901 Mm -hmm. and the North Atlantic Treaty uh, negotiations in 1948-49. And in both those negotiations, it's the states getting together saying, what are we going to do about Russia? And so what that led me to start thinking about is I started looking more and more at the data. I started looking more and more at the data on alliances, the data on war. And what I noticed was there's a strong Russian influence in our data, that many of the wars that we study, many of the events that we look at are pretty much Russia. And so what it led me to say is, are we really scholars of international relations or are we just scholars of Russian foreign policy? And so, and so that's the new book project is looking at kind of this broader claim of like to what extent are the data, both from a documentary, uh, documentation standpoint, but also the data you would use for statistical analysis, to what extent are those data just reflecting either Russian foreign policy or reactions to Russian foreign policy? And so really kind of raising questions about the entire discipline of international relations, which could also translate into questions about the discipline of military history, the questions of discipline of diplomatic history, because I think that once someone starts thinking about it, you go, yeah, there really is a big, like, Russia effect here. Because, again, like in my cases, I'm not even studying Russia, but Russia is what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So this is what, you know, this is, so that's a kind of a new, another project that's, you know, going to be coming along. And that one will be kind of the project, if you will, will be like the book after the Grown by War book. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, Russian IR scholars might, might say the same thing and that maybe it's all about the United States. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, that's right. They could, you know, that's why I actually, uh, there's no denying the U.S. has played a huge influence. And there's no denying the British, but... Mm-hmm. What I point out is that the time when the British were having the biggest influence, they were having a big influence vis-a-vis Russia. And then the British start to go into decline, the U.S. rises, and then the U.S. is having a big influence, say, post-1945, but it's vis-a-vis Russia. So Russia is the constant throughout the past 200 years. Is you know, So, yeah, it's exactly right. No, the U.S. is hugely influential, the British, but it's Russia that is always the constant throughout. Uh, a friend of mine, when I was sharing this idea with him, he goes, he goes, yeah, Russia always plays the heavy. They're always the heavy in, the, in these stories, right? But it, it, and so, yeah, that's really what this that next project's about. Yeah. Yeah, I was being a little flippant there, but. Oh, no, but it, yeah, it's totally, it makes total sense. <laughs> Um, all right, where can people find you on the, the web? So people can find me uh, in a couple of ways. Um, probably most easily they can find me on my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Prof Paul Post, so all, you know, I like alliteration, so it's, you know, at Prof Paul Post 
uh, on Twitter, and you could include a link to my Twitter uh, page. And, and what I like to do with my Twitter following is, um, you know, I try to be very much on brand, meaning I really focus on trying to show how international relations research um, informs current events and can help people to better understand uh, current events by looking at IR research. I also share a lot of content regarding the teaching of international relations because I teach like uh, graduate courses here at the University of Chicago. I teach a large intro to IR course. So I share a lot of that material. So I, I really think my Twitter uh, feed is, is really a good resource for people to be able to follow me, find me, and then also learn more about kind of the work I do, but also the work that people in IR in general do to help inform the world. And you have a website, too? I do. I have a website. It, you can access it through the Twitter feed, but it's uh, uh, paulpost.com. And that's post, P-O-A-S-T. Exactly, P-O-A-S-T. It's like toast with a P. <laughs> um, all right. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I, I really appreciate, again, you giving me the opportunity to, to come on and uh, and talk about my book with uh, Cornell, because it is. This has really been a major, uh, just a, a real thrill, a real joy to be able to write the book, to be able to work with Roger Hayden, who is the uh, editor at Cornell. It's just really a magnificent job, and I'm, I'm very proud of the book, um, but I'm also excited about the ideas that the book helped to generate further, as I shared, that I think there's some new avenues of research that I'm going to be able to pursue, and hopefully others are going to be able to pursue from reading this book. Cool, cool. Well, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. Thank you.